Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching Him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Amen. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord.
So he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best place to say to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up by 
Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. How do we Christians view the Sabbath? Well, we go back to the Catechism. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, or thou shalt sanctify the holy day. What this teaches us is that the third commandment still stands and is applicable to Christians today. Leads us to our next question. How is the Sabbath applicable today? Well, the external commands of worship on Saturday, a total cessation of work, and the like belong to the ceremonial. Christ, as you learned in catechism class, has come, and the ceremonial law is abrogated. It is no longer applicable. But the third commandment also belongs to the moral law which is in force at all times and in all places. In our gospel lesson, Christ teaches us the third commandment. Today, we learn that the Sabbath of God is opposed to the selfishness of man. In order to discuss that, we will talk about three different things. First, what is the Sabbath of God? Second, the selfishness of the Pharisees and their guests. And finally, the application thereof. What is the Sabbath of God? The word Sabbath means rest. There are three ways in which the Bible speaks about the Sabbath. First, the Bible speaks about the temporal, or this world, Sabbath. The first time, outside of Genesis 2, that the Sabbath shows up is in Exodus 16. In Exodus chapter 16, we hear about the manna, the bread from heaven. And on Friday, the people were commanded by God through Moses to gather twice as much manna and to prepare it for consumption. The reason for this is that there would be no manna to be found on the Sabbath day. This was a test. It was a test to see if the people would trust in God and keep his commandments and his laws. But there were other temporal Sabbaths besides the weekly Sabbath. Every seven years, the land of Israel was supposed to have a Sabbath. That meant that the land was not worked. It lay fallow and untended. And the great jubilee happened every 49 years, seven years times seven, and it was the ultimate Sabbath where the slaves were freed and ancestral land was returned to their families. In short, the temporal law here included the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the political law. This Sabbath was given by God through Moses to the people of Israel alone. Second, the Bible speaks about a spiritual Sabbath. The spiritual Sabbath is the content of the Christian's life. Jesus speaks about the spiritual Sabbath in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 11 beautifully describe the spiritual Sabbath. 
This is the Christian's life. Our life in Christ is to rest in the grace and in the mercy of the highest one who loves you and gave himself up for you on the cross. This spiritual Sabbath is the Christian's rest in the merit of Christ, and it is a cessation from work, because here Christ tenderly invites you to lay down your burdens, your fears, your anxieties, and your sins. It's kind of like uh, the hymn we just sang in verse 8. When all my deeds I am reviewing, the deeds that I admire the most, I find in all my thought and doing that there is naught whereof to boast. Yet this sweet comfort shall abide in mercy I can still confide. And this spiritual Sabbath is not limited to a day or to an hour, but this Sabbath rest is the Christian's life every single day and hour. In short, the spiritual Sabbath is nothing else than the justification and the sanctification of the, of the sinner before God. And finally, the Bible speaks about the heavenly Sabbath. The prophet Isaiah foretold this heavenly Sabbath in Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23. Whereas the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And St. Paul in the book of Hebrews writes these blessed words about the heavenly Sabbath. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The heavenly Sabbath is the Sabbath rest we enter into when we die, or when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. And in this heavenly Sabbath, we shall be free from the bondage of corruption and sin. And we shall rest in God forever and ever. So how do these three types of Sabbaths, the temporal, the spiritual, and the heavenly, relate to one another? The temporal Sabbath ought to create and reveal the spiritual Sabbath. Just like our divine service the temporal Sabbath was an institution of faith for faith. The divine service and the Sabbath revealed the faith of the congregation, just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I believed, and therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore speak. We show that we believe when we come to the divine service. And we participate in things like prayer and praise and singing of hymns, listening to the service, sermon, receiving the Lord's Supper, and the like. 
The divine service and the Sabbath also create faith in the ignorant or in the very young by the means of God's word. I mean, look all the way back to Exodus 16 with the manna. By restricting the, the, the gathering of manna and work on the Sabbath day, God was teaching and testing his people. He taught them that they were but creatures, and he taught them to rely on him alone and to trust in him as the giver of all good things. Now, the relationship between the spiritual and the heavenly Sabbath is very easy to discern. If you do not have the spiritual Sabbath, you will not enter into the heavenly Sabbath. But the temporal Sabbath is also related to the heavenly Sabbath. Why did God restrict work? Well, because the temporal Sabbath is a picture. It's a type of the heavenly Sabbath. Physical rest on the temporal Sabbath is a picture of the elect who in heaven rest from their sins, from calamities, and from the miseries of this life. God is in them, and they rest in God forevermore. Now we've pondered the significance of the Sabbath and how the Bible talks about the rest of God. What then opposes the Sabbath of God? Well, the selfishness of man opposes God's Sabbath, as we see in the Pharisees and in the guests of today's text. How does this selfishness manifest itself? Well, the first way that selfishness manifests itself in our text is envy. They watched Jesus closely. The Pharisees envied Jesus. They were discontent because Jesus taught with authority that they did not possess. They wanted Jesus' authority, and so they sought to overcome Jesus either by argument or by force. Envy, that discontentment that we feel at the talents, the power, or the fortune of another, is a derivative of selfishness. The second way that selfishness manifests itself in our text today is that conscious rejection of of God's truth. It says here that the Pharisees kept silent and they could not answer Jesus regarding these things. Jesus' argument from the lesser to the greater was irrefutable. Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And one of the presuppositions that Jesus is operating with here is Proverbs 12.10, which says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So if a man is righteous by taking care of his donkey or his ox on the Sabbath, then how much more righteous is that man when he helps and supports another man? who is of much more value than the dumb brutes. But a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And that is selfish. If the Pharisees did accept Jesus' argument, then they would have to change their minds and their hearts and their actions. And that is a hard pill to swallow, to completely change 
how we think about something. It's hard to change how we act. And that's why it's very, very selfish. Because the Pharisees' comfort was more important to them than the truth. They were selfish when they rejected the self-evident truth of Jesus' words. The third way that selfishness manifests itself in our text is in the pride of place and in utility. Jesus noted how they chose the best places. And in the same section here, Jesus also condemns those who only invite their friends and their neighbors to the feasts because they will invite them back. Pride and utility are opposite sides of the same selfish coin. Pride vaunts itself against the other. Competition and honor always comes at the expense of the other. Utility, on the other hand, extends the hand to those who can and will help and who will support me in return. Although they are opposites, these two reactions spring from the same worldview. And that worldview is this. I am the center, and I will either put down or support others as it helps and supports me. And Jesus combats this selfishness with very pragmatic examples. When he speaks to pride, he says, do not sit down in the best place. When he speaks to utility, he says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. This advice isn't for all times and in all places. Rather, the things that Jesus says here are very pragmatic, time-conditioned ways of combating the real problem. The real problem is the worldview of selfishness, and it must be replaced with a different worldview, the worldview of selfless spiritual Sabbath. We have pondered the Sabbath, and we've pondered selfishness. What is the application of these things? Well, the first way to apply this to your life is this. The spiritual Sabbath surmounts the temporal Sabbath. Or to put it in a different way, necessity knows no law. If you are driving to church and someone is broken down on the side of the road, help them. If we start late because pastor needed to talk to someone or visit someone in the emergency room, that is a good thing. Remember Jesus' words. Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? The Lord proved by the healing of the man with dropsy that works demanded by love of the forsaken neighbor and by absolute necessity are not only permitted, but they're actually commanded. Love for the neighbor, which springs from our rest in the highest, transcends any temporal law or custom regarding the Sabbath. The second way you can apply this to your life is this. The temporal Sabbath was made not only for you, but also for your neighbor. Often we speak about going to church and hearing the sermon as filling up the gas tank. And it's true. The principal point of the divine service 
is so that you can hear and receive the gospel that you're never going to hear in any other place. Through this gospel, God works in you. All of this is true, and it is the most important point of the divine service. But we also must be careful that it doesn't become all about me either. The most important point is that you receive the forgiveness of sins for Jesus' sake. But that's not the only reason that we come to church. And we see this very, very clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Here, Paul tells us not to forsake the assembly. He is telling us, in very simple words, don't stop coming to church. But why? What is his point in this? Well, it's very easy. To consider one another. To stir up love and good works in and for one another. To exhort and encourage and build one another up. You come to church not only for yourself. You come to church for your neighbor too. Because your neighbor needs you. We see this with families with young children. In Iowa, I had mothers with young children who came up to me uh, with a bad conscience. They felt guilty because they couldn't listen to the sermon as well as they wanted, so they thought that they were breaking the third commandment. But here in this text, we see that the Sabbath is about selflessness. Parents with young children fulfill the third commandment by bringing their children to church. They're exhorting them by bringing them up. They stir them up for a love of God's word. They do what God commands them to do when they bring up their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And that is fulfilling the third commandment. And this is true not just of parents with young children, but it's true for each and every one of you. When you come here, I am encouraged because I see that God's word actually does work. When a widow comes here, she encourages us by showing us that death does not have the final say. When your next door neighbor sees you driving out of your garage on a Sunday morning, he sees that this thing that we call church is important enough for you to get up in the morning. When you come here, you're given an opportunity to listen to your neighbors, to pray with them, and to pray for them, and to help them stay strong in whatever whatever temptations that they are dealing with. Pastor Preuss has said it time and time again, and today our text says it to you too. Come to both Sundays and Wednesdays during Advent and Lent. This is for you, and it's for those who come on Wednesdays. I mean, the cool thing, the most important thing, is that you get to hear more of God's Word, which is the main reason. 
But the other reason is also very important. Be with your neighbor here in church. Know him. Love him. Pray for him. Learn his struggles, his joys, and his temptations. And help him with God's word. Because the Sabbath was made for you, and it was made for your neighbor. The third way that you can apply this text to yourself is this. The spiritual Sabbath is not limited to a day or an hour, but it fills every aspect of your life. The life of the Christian, the spiritual Sabbath is not limited to an hour or two on Sunday mornings. We cannot be spiritual schizophrenics. There is no part of our lives, there is no part of our jobs, there is no part of our speech, there is no part of our souls that is not claimed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Nor is there any part of our lives or minds or souls that do not rest in his mercy and in his merits. This is why Jesus speaks not just of the temporal Sabbath, but he also speaks today about honor and he speaks about feasts. God actually does care about who you invite to your parties because it reveals something about your heart. God actually does care about your ambitions, because they could be rooted in selfishness. Every part of your life belongs to Christ your Lord. And may the Holy Spirit bring every aspect of our lives in captivity to Christ. The Sabbath of God is opposed to the selfishness of man. And selfishness is our default position. In that way, we are no different from the Pharisees or from the other guests. The Sabbath of God brings a cessation to our works of selfishness. We no longer have to justify ourselves to society, to our bosses, to ourselves, or even to God. And that's because we rest in the blood and righteousness of Christ. We are sons of God by faith. And so we have everything. We possess heaven and we possess earth. We shall judge angels on the last day. All things are ours in Christ. And if all things are ours, then we don't even have to think about ourselves. We can think about the neighbor, the one who needs our love and our help. May God, through the temporal Sabbath, give us the spiritual Sabbath in this life so that we might enjoy the eternal Sabbath rest in the next world. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.